Hello, and welcome to another episode of Insure and Certain Hope, a podcast about Jesus, faith, the Episcopal Church, and other things. I'm the Reverend Jedediah Fox, the rector of the Church of the Redeemer and in Kenmore, Washington, and your host. I'm glad you're with us today. Today's episode is another installation of The Basics of Faith, where we continue our survey of the history of the church in the history of the church, part two. So I hope you enjoy. So the second part of our survey of the history of the church, we're going to start back in England where we left off in section one. And after St. Alban, who we only find out about later, the next most famous people uh, in the early part of the church in England are monks. And this is part of the outgrowth of monasticism, that movement that started in the fourth century after uh, persecution and martyrdom ended. Uh, It started in the East, in Syria and Egypt, and then spread very quickly throughout all of the Christianized, uh, any place that Christianity was, it spread to very quickly uh, as a different way of being the church in the world, of giving your life to Christ. Now that you couldn't get killed for being a Christian in the same way that you could before the Edict of Milan in 313. So the next most famous Christian Briton is a man by the name of Pelagius. And Pelagius was a monk from England, uh, from what was known then as Britannica, uh, a Celtic Britain. Cause remember this is before the Anglo-Saxons who gets, and, and Pelagius is famous because he gets crossways with Augustine of Hippo, who is the most famous figure of the fifth century. Uh, he is, uh, Augustine of Hippo, uh, became the Bishop of Hippo, H I P P O, not the animal. Um, but a, uh, a town in North Africa in, uh, the Roman empire. And, um, Augustine of Hippo gets crossway with, with Pelagius because Pelagius doesn't like Augustine's idea of original sin and the um, base terribleness of humanity. Uh, rather, Pelagius, who leaves England in about 380, is a fairly young man um, on, on what was known as green martyrdom, which is you leave your home and never come back. So for Pelagius leaving England, never to return. Um, Pelagius disagrees with the region's doctrines of Augustine of Hippo. And his core belief is that is the goodness of humanity, that under everything else, humans are essentially good. And, you know, he's probably backed up by Genesis on that fact. Uh, and there are some who said who, who assert that Pelagius also believed that we could turn to salvation without the help of God and the Holy Spirit. That is actually questionable in what we don't know that Pelagius actually thought any of that. Uh, it was attributed to a heresy named after him called Pelagianism. That does indeed say that, um, which the church has said is not true. Um, but, but the existence of Pelagius and, uh, how he functions, uh, tells us something about the church in England before, uh, about 600 that it was, Christianized for the most part, and it was um, 
very essentially monastic. Uh, this is, this is, it was a part of what we now call Celtic Christianity. Remember the Britons who live in England before, uh, the Anglo-Saxon invasion, our Celtics, our Celts, just like the denizens of Ireland, just like the denizens of Scotland and of the coastal parts of the Iberian Peninsula. They're all from essentially the same, um, ethnic Indo-European background. Uh, they're all Celts. And so uh, this decentralized monastic uh, communities with an emphasis on the Johannine narrative of the gospel uh, is, is ascendant in England before the Anglo-Saxon invasions. And then you have the Anglo-Saxon invasions of the 6th century, Angles and Saxons and Jutes, oh my, um, and the pushing of the Britons to the West to become the Welsh. And then in um, 596, Gregory the Great, after the Anglo-Saxon invasions, looks to England. The Ang Gregory the Great is the Pope in Rome at the time. Looks to England and sends his favorite student on, on a mission to the Anglo-Saxons. Uh, and his favorite student's name is Augustine. Not of Hippo. Different Augustine. Uh, about 150 years later, uh, Augustine, who will, he will become become known as St. Augustine of Canterbury. And St. Augustine uh, arrives in Kent in southeast England and sets up uh, in the kingdom of a king who is sort of neutral feeling towards Christianity and who has a Christian wife. And they set up a um, shop at Canterbury in the kingdom of Kent. Um, and then in 1625, uh, Paulinus, one of Augustine's followers is sent up to set up shop in Northumbria in York, uh, which lasts for just under 10 years. And then Northumbria falls, uh, and, uh, falls to the Picts who are, uh, who are, uh, the people who live in what we call Scotland beyond Hadrian's wall. Uh, and then. After uh, a new king, Oswald, reconquers Northumbria, he calls in uh, Saint, uh, a man named Aidan from the island of Iona. Because while all this is happening in England, Ireland and Scotland are also being Christianized as well by these Celtic neighbors, such as Patrick, who was a Briton. He was not Irish. He was British. Uh, he was a British Celt, um, but he helped the conversion of Ireland. Uh, Columba is a, an Irish monk who gets sent away from Ireland for being too bellicose. He ends up on the, on an Island on the West side of Scotland named Iona and, uh, is essentially the uh, Patrick of Scotland. And, uh, one of his pupils, Aidan is called by Oswald to set up a new monastery and center of Christianity on a little island on the west, on the east side of uh, Northumbria called Lindisfarne. So that uh, jumps, uh, jumps off, is the jumping off point for the Christianization of Northern England uh, in, in a more Celtic manner uh, that is decentralized, monastic, and um, based around those monasteries of both men, of men, or women, or both men and women, called a double monastery, which was very common in Celtic Christianity. Oswald's son, 
uh, is very confused because he has married a Christian wife, but his Christian wife is Christianized under the Roman tradition from Canterbury, and he is a Celtic Christian. And so they don't keep the same date of Easter. The, uh, their monks look different. That's uh, very confused uh, for confusing for the King Oswy, uh, whose wife is Roman. And so he calls a meeting of all Christians in England uh, to help him decide whether he should continue with Celtic Christianity or he should uh, move to, toward a more Roman-focused Christianity. Uh, the, um, various priests come and argue for the various causes in each of these, and eventually the Roman uh, Oswe decides for the Roman side, uh, which causes the slow conversion of all the Celtic monasteries and all of Celtic Christianity in most of England to... Um, to the Roman idea, both Roman tantra, but the Roman way that monastics are supposed to cut their hair. I uh, think Friar, Tr- Friar Tuck, and um, and the uh, the the calculation of the date for Easter, which um, was uh, important because you didn't want to be in Easter while your uh, Celtic Christian neighbors down the road were still in Lent, or vice versa. Uh, and so when, as that happens, you also have the rise of monasticism on the continent, uh, in the West, uh, because remember monasticism starts in the East, but becomes very important throughout, uh, all of Christianity. And, uh, during this time, uh, in the seventh century, you have the very important rise of St. Benedict in Italy and the rule of St. Benedict, which becomes the predominant rule for all monastic communities in Western, in the Western Christian world. Uh, so most of these monasteries in England eventually become Benedictine, uh, and the Celts for their part, uh, accept and practice, uh, a move to Rome for the sake of unity. Uh, they see unity as being more important than being right or preserving their, the way that is connected them to their, to their God. And so they choose the unity of the church over, um, their own desires. Uh, then in England in the eighth century, a series of Viking invasions throw all the kingdoms of England into chaos and, uh, all of the Christian missions are, are, are struggling a bit with all of these invasions. Uh, meanwhile, in the rest of Christi- of Christianity, uh, you have two uh, very important things that happen. First of which is uh, the continuing Christianization of the West of Europe, of Western Europe, particularly the Germanic tribes that are uh, emerging as new powers, the Franks uh, in France, uh, the Frisians in uh, the Netherlands. And the area we now call the Netherlands and all of the Germanic tribes of North Central Europe. Uh, all of them are being, uh, are being evangelized and becoming Christian, uh, usually beginning with the king. Um, you know, the Fr- Franks are the, a particular example of this. Uh, they're the king of the Franks, whose name is Pepin the First or Pepin the Short becomes Christian, and therefore all Franks must then become Christian, uh, which is, which was the most effective way to evangelize Germanic tribes, because once the head of the tribe was um, believed in a religion, it filtered down very quickly, um, sometimes by force, to the rest of the, of the tribe. Um, so you see, and, and 
basically it's the same thing that happens with Constantine um, three centuries earlier. And then you also have the iconoclasm controversy of the eighth century, uh, where uh, the a certain Archbishop of Constantinople declares that all depictions of uh, God and um, and any human, for that matter, are are heretical. Uh, the emperor actually decrees this. Uh, the Pope, on the other hand, says, no, you're crazy. And all the rest of the bishop, archbishops around the church in Asia and the Middle East and Africa also go, uh, no. Uh, but it, it, it's uh, apparently the Pope doesn't say no loudly enough. And it simply increases a lot of the tension that is being felt between Christianity in the West and Christianity in the East. Um, there are, there are other things that they debate about, particularly the filioque controversy, uh, which is a little bit in the uh, Nicene Creed uh, that says, if you say filioque in Latin, it means and the son. So you think about in the creed, we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the father. And in the Western church, we always added and the son. Uh, in the Eastern Church, they've never wanted to add that. Uh, that can, that comes up in the 6th century and is a point of tension, along with this iconoclastic controversy where the Pope doesn't condemn the emperor hard enough. Uh, and it just increases the rift between East and West. And that then blossoms into full schism in the 11th century in 1054. Uh, there is a fi- We are officially um, two different denominations of the Christian Church. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, some, some Christian historians call this the second great mistake. Uh, the allowing ourselves to fracture over um, things we disagree about. Uh, so now we have um, a Western church that is run by the Pope. And an Eastern church that is run by the ecumenical patriarchs. Um, which are the seven, arch, seven archbishops of very important uh, metropolitans are very important cathedrals in, in the Eastern church, in Syria, in Asia minor, in Africa, uh, and the like, uh, the West goes into a bloom of monastic renewal in the 11th century as well. You have the, um, the founding of the Cistercians, which are basically like fundamentalist Benedictines. Uh, they believe that, uh, Benedictines don't do enough manual labor and are too, uh, friendly. So you have the Cistercians and the, and also the founding of the mendicant orders, particularly the Franciscans and the Dominicans. Uh, hopefully, if you want to know more about those, uh, we can talk about them another time. Uh, the church in this time period is also um, beginning to deal with strife between uh, the church and its growing uh, power and influence, particularly from the Pope on down and the various heads of state, particularly Kings um, that are beginning to rise up such as uh, in, in new nation states, such as France and the Holy Roman empire and England. Uh, So England in the Anglo-Saxon period is fairly unstable. There's lots of different things that are happening. Uh, the church through it all is trying to manage, uh, its own continuing work. And, um, you have a series of, of Archbishop of Canterbury and a series of Kings of different kinds, including the, uh, North Atlantic empire, uh, self-styled North Atlantic empire by the Danish King Knut. Uh, but finally in 1066, you have the Norman invasion, uh, which is basically, uh, 
French Vikings come and take over England and, uh, and use the church in some ways to do that. Uh, some of the continental influences of, of Christianity are increased with Norman patronage, uh, particularly William the Conqueror, the first ki- William the first uh, king of England. The first Norman king uh, uses monastic expansion as a method of conquest. He founds uh, 15 monasteries and nearly 60 abbeys throughout England in a decade's time. Uh, and uh, cements sort of the Benedictine nature of the church in England. Uh, the black monks, as they're known in England, uh, Benedictines are known in England, become the most ubiquitous members of the ch- ubiquitous uh monastic community in England, but also you have, uh, in 1100, uh, so 40 years after the Norman, the Norman conquest, you have the beginning of the Augustinians in England, uh, which are called the black Canons, And you also have, uh, Cistercians and Carthusians. Uh, Carthusians are basically people who follow the rule of St. Benedict and live in community, except they pretend that they're hermits. Um, they live, they live a hermetic life within community. And you also have the same conflict uh, in England that, uh, between the church and the state that you're having elsewhere, particularly with Henry the first, uh, William's son and the archbishop, uh, St. Anselm, uh, who the conflict is over who gets to appoint bishops, the King or the archbishop. And, um, in all of these cases, the, the church usually wins. The church gets to appoint bishops. Uh, it is brought that that question comes up again a generation later with Henry II and Thomas Becket. The church wins, but it takes the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Becket, being killed by Henry's knights uh, to answer that question. Uh, and uh, Thomas Becket's tomb at Canterbury becomes uh, the second most famous site of pilgrimage in Europe, second only to uh, San Juan de San Juan de Campostello in Spain. Uh, which will occur until the, and that will exist until the Reformation. So, uh, while the church is dealing with all of that, uh, the other thing that is happening is the rise of Islam in the East and it's sweeping across, uh, the Middle East, Asia, North and North Africa, and even coming into Europe in the Iberian Peninsula in Spain. Uh, you are also seeing seeing that and um, having to deal with the way that you interface between with other faiths, not only Islam but also Judaism. Uh, as you have uh, more and more diaspora um, Jewish people moving uh, both into Europe and around Europe. And finding where they can uh, live uh, without being harassed. Uh, and the church doesn't do a terribly good job of that. Uh, in the Fourth Lateran Council, they um, they have a lot of thoughts about how Christians are supposed to deal with Jews and Muslims living in, uh, in their midst in both Europe and elsewhere. And they don't do a terribly good job of that. Uh, so... And that kind of closes up the 13th century uh, of uh, beginning to be more and more strife. And that doesn't end as you get into the 14th century, uh, where you see, begin to see cracks in European Christendom. So at, that, at this point, uh, other than the Iberian Peninsula, 
uh, Europe is pretty much all Christian. Uh, and then you get into more and more Christian infighting. So you have uh, what are called the dueling popes. Uh, basically, a pope gets elected. He's not nice to the French to the French cardinals. And so the French cardinals go, well, we're going to go elect our own pope. And so you have a pope in Rome and a pope in Avignon, France. Uh, and so the period of the two popes, uh, both of which excommunicate the other one and say they're the fake pope and they're the real pope. And it's very confusing and it lasts for about 75 years. Uh, and at the same time, you have sometimes because of all of this um, not terribly Christian behavior by the church, you have uh, a whole bunch of reform movements that uh, give rise. One uh, led by an Englishman named John Wycliffe. Uh, who believed that uh, it was essential that all people could read God's word in the Bible. He is the first uh, person to translate the Bible into English. Uh, he translate all, translates all of the New Testament. And he says that the church uh, should not try to get in between people and their relationship with God. They should rather make it easier for people to be in a personal relationship with God. Um, Another uh, important figure in this uh, 14th, 15th century Reformation, uh, pre-Reformation reform movement is Jan Hus, who is a uh, Czech priest, uh, also trained at university. John Wycliffe was trained at Oxford, a university founded by the monastic orders. Uh, this is so, sometimes seen as the monastic, the monastic movement's chickens coming home to roost. Uh, Jan Hus, who is also university trained, takes the ideas of John Wycliffe uh, that had come up 20 years later, 20 years earlier before John Wycliffe was executed for heresy. And he uh, advocates for the flattening of hierarchy in the church and um, particularly uh, advocates against the, uh, d another decision of that same Lateran council uh, the, where the church decided that uh, Jews and Muslims should not intermarry with Christians among, and should wear special clothing to denote them from Christians and a lot of other things. That Lateran Council also says that in the 13th century that um, common folk shouldn't be allowed the cup in the Eucharist. They should only have bread, not wine, uh, because that otherwise they might besmirch the blood of Christ. Uh, Jan Hus protests, that, protests against that uh, vociferously and uh, a key part of his protest movement is to celebrate the Eucharist as many times as he can, anywhere he can, and to offer the cup to the laity at every single opportunity. And for this, he is also burned as a heretic. And this uh, sort of time of of, of conflict and uh, the cracks appearing in Christendom uh, in, in this sort of united Christendom in the West uh, culminates in 1453 with the fall of Constantinople to the, to the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so Constantinople is still a very important, um, very important part of Christendom. The Byzantine Empire has existed since 313 and, or 323, and its fall in 1453 signals a huge sea change in everything about Christianity and everything about Europe in general. Uh, the, it is the uh, greatest extent to which Islam will move toward Europe other than its incursion into the Iberian Peninsula and large parts of Spain. 
And it is um, where we will end today because in the 16th century, you have the beginnings of the Reformation. Now, all of this history I presented today seems really bad, seems very conflictual, very um, untidy in many ways. And you could say, well, you can see where the church got off the rails and maybe the Reformation had the right idea. And you'd be right in a lot of ways. And But I'd be remiss if I didn't say that particularly this this time in the thir- in the 13th, 14th, and 15th century was also a time of great beauty. A lot of the works that we think of as the most beautiful works of Christian expression of Christian faith in the world appear in this time, particularly in Italy, but also in France. You have um, the works of Frangelico, of Da Vinci, of Michelangelo, Donatello, uh, Raphael, all of these beautiful works of Christian of Christian art, which we still have many of today, also come from this same period. Um, and so the, these these conflicts and these cracks and these um, divisions that we begin to see popping up in Christianity are not just sources of angst and anger and conflict, but are also fuel that drive us to think more about Jesus in new and different ways and allow us to think about a relationship with God in new ways that provides new visual art for us to meet the divine in. And in all of this, this is a history of the church and the church is made up of people. And so as we see, and we're, as we're going into the reformation, the people in the church have lots of different ideas, ideas, but we, but the Holy Spirit is always driving it toward one thing, toward Jesus. No matter what the church does to try to break it apart and say that they're right and do all these other things, the church is always driving itself towards Jesus. And we, and we always do trust in that, no matter what. So that is the history of the church, part two, up to 1500. So next time we'll take on from the 16th century on. I want to thank you for joining us today uh, for this episode of Insurance Certain Hope, where we've talked about the history of the church part two. I hope you'll join us again very soon for the history of the church part three and all of the other basics of faith series here on this podcast. And until then, may God's blessing be with you. Christ's peace be with you. The Spirit's outpouring be with you. Amen. Amen.